0: Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of happiness and humans my name is Matt Phelan I am host of this podcast and co-founder of a business called the happiness index and for those who have uh, listened before will know that I am an avid reader and I love reading and I'm really lucky today uh, to be here with uh, a very new author Fiona hi Fiona good morning Matt how are you doing
1: I'm not too bad thank you
0: how's the shed that you're sitting in that our listeners can't see
1: <laughs> my uh, my writing studio as i've come to call it is very comfortable thanks to my husband having helped insulate it when he built it last year
0: at the start of this journey love that um fiona please introduce yourself
1: yeah so i'm fiona Macdonald. um i always know, wonder where to start here so i started life as an engineer and i've sort of been a marketer so left brain Marketeer, right brain engineer, but uh, in terms of what I've been doing in the commercial world, so I've spent 30 years in large consumer goods companies, many of you'll know, like Kraft and Kellogg's, uh, and most recently um, as a director at Amazon, working on a number of businesses in the consumer retail and uh, advertising
0: worlds. And today,
1: obviously, as a fresh author of my first ever published book, Two Mirrors and a Cheetah,
0: we're gonna def- we're gonna come back to that. That's the main reason for getting you on, Fiona. But before we do, um, I would love to know what makes you happy.
1: Gosh, uh, I think I remember sort of coming back to that on a uh, you know a year ago. There's lots of things make me happy. Um, I, the, I have two kids, so I'm of course seeing them, you know, safe and contented, and. Laughing, I love having sort of kids laughter in the house. Um, that completely makes me happy. But on a personal note, um, attempting things that are a little bit impossible and getting a kick out of seeing that they can be done um, is mm-hmm. something I love doing. Um, and I'm always completely happy when I'm in the middle of either a game of tennis or on my treadmill doing some sport and just switching out and into something different. I love so it. So lots of and- different
0: types of happiness there for you. Thanks, Fiona, and. So you've got your new book out, uh, Two Mirrors and a Cheetah. Um, my first question for anyone who's not who doesn't know anything about this book, like, it, well, I mean, what is Two Mirrors and a Cheetah? That could be anything, Fiona, couldn't it, Ben? But, it, no, it but I imagine it's so exciting for anyone um, that sees it on a shelf. So please, please tell us what uh, Two Mirrors and a Cheetah means.
1: Yeah, so the total book is Two Mirrors and a Cheetah, Think Differently, Own Your Career and Succeed by Being Yourself. And it's essentially a very easy reading career or professional development book. So my goal was to, if I could create a book that you could read on a beach rather than have to slog through as a workbook, that was what I was going for. And essentially, it's a book that can be used through you know any different number of lenses, whether you're starting out in your career or whether you're sort of mid-career, or just looking to get more career fulfillment from what you're doing, whether you're you know, not managing anybody and looking to manage yourself a bit better, or whether you're proceeding into management and looking to manage teams more effectively and more inclusively. It's essentially a guide that can work in all those situations. And what it is that differs slightly from others is, I'm not pushing a coaching brand. You know, I'm a leader who's had 30 years um, experience in some really large global companies, like I've just mentioned. And I've been, you know, I've had a luxury of working in different companies, different countries and in completely different roles. And I've used a mixture of a um, creative and abstract framework. That's the two mirrors in the cheetah, which is a set of metaphors to help um, describe difficult um, to cope with sort of career Development topics and bring them to life and land them in a hopefully more obvious way, and I've combined my 30 years of experience with some very open uh, and candid, um, you know, examples and anecdotes to show how things can be done. So it's not just thought provoking, but it's an actionable read as well. Is that a big enough nutshell for a Cheetah?
0: I think it is, Fiona. And this, I want to ask a question on on behalf of one of our listeners, actually. Um, if you if you met her, uh, I reckon most people who meet her would hire her. She's a highly competent person in her role um, of what she does. She's a project manager, but she struggles so much in the in the interview process. Really struggles to turn up to an interview and be herself. Mm-hmm. Gets, gets really really stressed out about the interview process to the point she says yeah. it's held back her career. And I just want to focus on the bit um here succeed by being your yourself and i'd love to just actually ask you fiona because Mm -hmm. those organizations like amazon and so on i imagine they have quite a vigorous interview process Um, have you been have you been yourself in let's take amazon when you were interviewed at amazon were, were you yourself did you feel comfortable to do that
1: I was because I had knocked on their door to find out about them and sort of create a job for myself, which I can come on to a minute if that's interesting. But let me just step back and answer um, your listener's question there. So the thing about the way I have put say, the job hunting section together in Two Mirrors and a Cheetah, doing stuff by being yourself means understanding who you are and what you've got to bring, first and foremost, and not hiding that by wearing a whole load of masks like we do. And looking at the job process specifically when you're looking for jobs or applying for jobs and interviewing for jobs, it's very easy to be what you think people expect they want to see rather than going in as yourself, almost unapologetically, but doing it in a smart way. And the sort of metaphors and the conditions I think of in doing um, the job hunt and actually the interviewing is, it's a marketplace of people who've got something to bring and those who are looking to buy something. But if you put yourself in the position mentally of thinking, well, I'm just one out of 100 people that companies can pick from, then you're already on the back foot feeling you're waiting for somebody to sort of select whether you're good enough. But if you're thinking about yourself as knowing what you've got as a whether product or you know, you know, you're offering, that you think about how you would pitch it, how you would sell it, you'll also maybe go to different types of buyers, i.e., companies, rather than simply applying to anything and everything. And it puts your mind in a different approach to think, not only do you have to answer what people want to know, but you have to be inquisitive to find out about them what they need and therefore position what you're bringing in a way that helps them. And I think by being yourself, it means that you're sort of not compromising on how you do stuff and that you're very conscious um, of what you can bring to the table rather than waiting for people to select a couple of things you may bring to the table and miss 90% of what you have to offer, for example. So there's a, it's a sort of a mindset change in how you approach these things and doing it like that gives you confidence if you know exactly what you're selling. Um, but also, you know, you'll know yourself when you sell anything in a marketplace, 90% of the pitches are knockbacks. But if you don't think like that, you're going to get upheaved by the fact that somebody said no to you rather than accepting it and moving on rapidly to the next one and, you know, seeing it as part and parcel of a process. Um, So to the second part of your question, did I, you know, was I myself? I've got better at being myself in recent years because I realized where I compromised and there's a big hinge and turning point for me. Not only did I run into a number of doors and realise that when I, was best, I was fueled by doing things I liked and being myself rather than being a version of what I thought a senior leader looked like. Um, And when I had kids, ironically, that became my switch of being far more happier and more productive whilst being completely exhausted as a new mum. But I didn't have time to try and pretend to be anybody else. And so my auto switch of being what I thought I needed to be kind of was lost by me having simply just enough energy to prioritize my kids. And therefore, when I did my work, I wasn't switching off into somebody else. I was just getting it done. And I very ironically found that people appreciated that and they weren't looking for the sort of smooth version that was trying to be what they wanted. They loved seeing, I you don't know, maybe the wrong word, but you know, people being themselves because you bring something different because not yeah. everybody is you. Um, So, yeah, for Amazon, yes, I did that. But I I also imagine not everybody knocks on Amazon's door and tries to create a job. So that was maybe me very much being myself. And I was lucky that um, that paid off, but I've done that a number of times. And um, you know, I do encourage people to think differently, interview the companies you might want to work at, uh, see if the culture, particularly if you're interviewing, I interview to understand what it might be like to work there rather than to understand what the job is, because I can find that in different ways and see if I can find out, would I like to be there? Would I be happy working in that company? Um, And you can find the answers no to some of those questions and you know which companies may not work for you, but equally you can find answers where you think that might work for me. It doesn't mean there's a job, but you've learned something about an environment you may be able to thrive in.
0: Does that answer
1: your question fully?
0: It It does, Fiona, and I just want to capture that, two points from that. One, it's a real mindset shift on how you approach it. And secondly, you only touched on it briefly about interviewing the interviewer about the culture and what it's like to work there. Can you, yeah. can you just give us a little bit more flavor on that? Cause I think there's some real juice in that part. Fiona. Yes.
1: So when I've when I've gone through these processes where I've tried to understand about companies, I've sort of reached out to my network or got a fifteen-minute coffee conversation with somebody to sort of find out what it's like working in these companies and never mentioning a job. Just simply sort of understanding, you know, how does the world tip? What does an average week look like? Are you heavily, you know, data-driven, meeting-driven? What does it look like? And then you get a feel for the type of person that may fit in there. But I also, when I'm in an actual interview process, when maybe there is a job that's in discussion and I'm sitting with the hiring manager, you know, Mm -hmm. that is one moment where you don't yet report to that individual you might want to. And so you can ask of them, you know, what is your style of management? You know, how would you and I work? What would my world look like working under you? And far from being cheeky, as many people think, that's far too outrageous to ask that, the hiring manager might think, wow, this individual's doing their homework, they care about the working relationship they're going to go into, and they're doing the homework in informing themselves. And we would expect if we hired that individual, they'd be as, you know, detailed and diligent in doing stuff for our clients or for our customers. And so it's not seen as a bad thing, but many people might shy away from it because it sounds a bit nuts.
0: It's funny, the, the, the key word that resonated with me that when I'm interviewing that, that you said was care, because that, that's exactly, you, you highlight exactly how I feel when someone's asking these questions, I think, oh, okay, you do actually, you wanna know you're interested. So I just, that's all I pick up. So it's amazing you picked out that word. Um,
1: as a, as a hiring manager, if I just say honestly, as a hiring manager, when I my, you know, hire people, they're going to get a job working for me. They're also going to get my coaching and my leadership development. I'd love to find that they that they care who they work for or interested to see who can give them what they need in their next step. So it's, it's for you to own your own career from the word go and all the way through and rather than expecting people to sort of take a cookie cutter personal development on top of you. Um, and then there's the other elephant in the room that you know many people leave companies because of that manager relationship. It's, it's never really seen as a part of a, something people are looking for in a new job, and yet it tends to be the thing, or one of the main things, when people think the job didn't work out because the manager thing didn't work. So yeah. sort of if you're gonna look at what company, what commuting distance, what salary, why don't you sort of see what manager you looking for and go check out that that type of manager or those things are there, before you go into a working relationship, if you feel, you know, you can do that.
0: Thanks, Fiona. So so insightful. Um, I just want to go to something um, which we call freedom to be human, right? So freedom to be human is the it's it's the vision of the happiness index, and sometimes people think it's a it's like a marketing thing. Um, but one of the things that, you, that uh, so I want to flip it around now and just get some advice from managers. Um one of the, the so there's lots of different things but for freedom to be human is about being yourself at work to thrive so similar to some of the language that you, that you have used but one of the top four on happiness um is psychological safety so i just want to flip it round, fiona so you talk about um people being able to be themselves as a manager you let's say you've got five people in your team How do you encourage them to be yourself, be themselves, sorry? Have you got any tips on that?
1: Yeah, first and foremost, as a manager, you know, I would hope you have interest in people. Otherwise, why are you being a manager? It's not managing tasks. It's managing individuals in your care, to use that word again. And I, what I see it misses a lot, but it's my number one start point is to make a connection with those people as people. It's so simple to say, and yet so often missed out. But, you know, you don't. Leaders need followers. There's a choice there. You know, managers have subordinates and you can decide which side of that equation, you know, or that sort of extreme you'd like to be. But for me, number one is, you know, getting to know your individuals, finding some way to connect. And it doesn't have to be with the work, but so that you have a two-way street of conversation that's possible. And doing that on an individual basis where possible, rather than just a large sort of Q&A session with the team so that they can understand who you are you know, and get to find a way that they you you make yourself accessible. And if you can't demonstrate that you're being yourself and sharing a bit about you, then how will you ever expect individuals to do that too? And so as part of creating that psychological safety, it's about you going first and actually being yourself in as much as possible rather than a robotic, you know, version of what a standard manager can be. And that might be with a little bit of inside of your family life or your sporting interests or whatever on the edge. So it's not just strictly business. Um, And to do that, it takes, you know, sort of comfort in who you are to do that. Otherwise, you know, people don't feel like they can smoothly and authentically or whatever, realistically talk about the stuff that falls outside of um, the work world. So that will be number one thing. And number two is really understand what your people need from you. You know, it's, Yes, there's work to be done, but these are people, people have aspirations and this is just one row, you know, step on their career journey whilst under your supervision and your development. Find out what you can achieve there and how you can know where you can set them up for a job, not just whilst working for you, but down the line. Cause and of course don't stop people moving on. I see so many managers, they they worry about keeping people in their team rather than actually Setting them up to go anywhere, and then they'll talk brilliantly about the wonderful development you gave them. So, it's literally about you know finding those connections, understanding what people need for you, and then doing it in a way that works for everybody. And trying to sort of communicate and keep realistic rather than doing that at the beginning and then only ever talking about the work from there on in. You have to be consistent and sort of check back in with you know with individuals what you're doing as a team together and what they need.
0: That's such, such good advice, Fiona. And and obviously you've got two. You got two children. You said, didn't you?
1: I do. So. I have. Well, and since yesterday, an eleven-year-old and an eight-year-old. Two boys. So I
0: can't, so I can't ask you your favourite child, but what I am going to ask you is your favourite chapter. Do you oh. um do you have a favourite chapter in the book? In the book,
1: um,
0: gosh, um. This is you. I've never seen you thrown before, Fiona. <laughs>
1: no, I mean, I, there's a couple I, that I, I do like when when I sort of wrote, that I had. Well, in terms of liking, and the reason I'm you know hesitating there is I had different joy in writing them or ease, whereas I think the ones that are most powerful individuals, um, you know, may not be the same thing. So for me, and
0: let's let's, um, let's break it down. I'd like to know which one you got most joy from and which thing, which chapter you think is the most powerful.
1: So number two, mirror i think is potentially the most powerful and number three which is the cheetah um i can have had so much joy because i take that metaphor throughout the book and i'm happy to explain where that came from because both those chapters were moments that i stumbled on with the kids um and without you know too many spoilers you know the mirror number two i use a metaphor that's from the disney snow white and uh, seven Dwarfs, and it's not just about looking in a mirror but it's about you know hanging our self-belief on the words of others. So, you know, the society, as I'm fascinated with, dictates all these things we should be doing. And so many of us go along with it. And when you take just a moment to sort of stand still and go, "Mm, why am I doing that? And actually you have little control over being yourself and yet people think of course i'm being myself and then you pick it apart and you know the ironing examples i use i grew up ironing sheets and towels you know listening to the top 40 on the radio um you know taping it as a, as a you know young person doing that for my parents religiously on a sunday and yet i don't iron a single thing now you know because I just know it's not one of my priorities but it was something i had to question So little things like that. Um, But I found that most powerful doing it because it was also a chapter that was originally written very, very differently with some of the newspaper articles i would written. And my editor trashed the whole thing. Um, And she cut so much out of it, there was virtually nothing left. But this image that I'd uncovered with the kids with the Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, I felt was powerful enough because it's a bit of a no-brainer of how we look at our world. And it was then that the idea of, you know, flagging out the the confidence piece, the volume switch piece, and the sort of fear of failure, which are just no brainers for me to talk about because they're so powerful that I went back to the drawing board literally and rewrote that entire chapter. So that's why that one is important to me because it almost nearly wasn't. Um, And then the second one with the cheetah, so I'm you know, alongside being a leader, I've been a big diversity champion um, for a number of years and I've had a lot of public exposure to do stuff with that, which I'm super grateful for. And I remember again with the kids watching um, I think it was the top ten deadliest beasts or something a number of Christmases ago. And you know, you've got your good old um uh whatchamacallit, the chameleon, you know, your chameleons, you've got your deadly spiders, a komodo dragons, and the cheetah was in there a number just under number five or so. And this vision of the cheetah up against the wildebeest, sort of like hundreds of big, heavy wildebeest, and then this small, svelte, sort of feline cat. It doesn't look possible on the face of it. And I love sort of using that as a diversity metaphor of the gender diversity challenge, actually. But because of the persistence, the knowledge of skills and the awareness of weaknesses, the cheetah can triumph over what looks impossible. And I find that endlessly encouraging to take something from the natural world to go, well, if that can happen, how can you take that metaphor back? And it's about recognizing that your environment as well as your own knowledge of yourself is so powerful to helping you succeed rather than just knowing what skills you've got and so many people will draw the line at only understanding what their strengths are maybe their weaknesses and yet there's so much more to understand about yourself um and i like to say if you put a cheetah in a concrete car park and the wildebeest in a tin underneath a mini in the corner it would be a completely different use of that scanner that's rather bizarre but then that skill of being the fastest land animal that skill is useless in that scenario and so it brings home the fact that where you are the environment you're in Mm. can be the make or break it's not just about your skills and you know taking that metaphor back into the the work world if you're in the wrong environment the wrong company and it's something that doesn't work for you it doesn't matter how powerful your skills are so try and be open to moving. So that's a long-winded answer to my two yeah. favorite
0: chapters there. I'm just, I'm just, cra- I'm not even going to go on to the next question yet, because I think the, the listeners are going to be f- reflecting on that point about trying to understand if, if you're in the right place for, for essentially what your skills are, because I'm, I'm imagining there's other people that are listening to you right now, Fiona, that will be mulling over their own life, thinking, am I in the right place at, at the moment? If, if someone is thinking that, Fiona, have you got any advice for them?
1: yeah keep asking or make a note because we you can also as you start to look at where you're at you can think is it a particular day where you're feeling like that or is it a trend over time so you know you love data as much as i do matt you know it's not about the number it's about trends over time so just make a little note and check back in with yourself in a week's time if that question still is valid then yeah. you know you should be doing something about it because I do meet so many people who realize they are stuck or they're in the wrong spot but their view of the alternative is normally an insurmountable mountain to get to a huge career change rather than having enough knowledge about all the little bits and pieces of themselves and where they'll know can fit to be able to find an iterative step or a number of other opportunities or steps that are doable rather than so large it's better to be unfulfilled forever and it's about building your own bridge of all those other opportunities rather than just that idea of success so far off in the distance or that happiness is for the few which is it's not but how do you do that um so i would ask i would encourage people to feel it feel how uncomfortable you are rather than ignore it put up with it because that gives you the start fire to go okay now I'm going to do something about
0: it Mm, I find that fascinating because I gave I I gave up alcohol for a year and I'm going to I'm continuing at the moment I've met more people that have given up alcohol and the amount of people that have given up alcohol and then gone on to make big changes in their lives from everything from personal to work and I think going back to that point of can you feel it I think there are, things like alcohol can be a way of just of just pushing it away and not actually feeling what's going on in your life. So I think that's such an, such an important point around feeling it because some people think that's like a hippie thing sometimes, but it's so powerful. So,
1: yeah, I mean, for those who don't like to just think about feeling it, the the very few exercises in this book, because it is an easy reading one, there are sort of little reflection moments where I pose questions of you. So it's not about telling you how to do these things, A, B, C, and you'll be fine. It's about asking you the right questions so that you arrive at your own answers. And once you learn to listen to the answers that you know you've already got, there's no escaping them and that you you know if you're the person that needs a structure then there's you know you write it down and you do week one week two week three whatever there's different ways of doing it but you know everybody has one shot at life and you can choose to do whatever but you know what the more you hear that inner you know whether it's unrest um the more you want to do something about it and my book is basically about providing something that helps you carve out and find those next little iterative steps rather than just look at that mountain in the distance of career change that you're never going to go near because you don't like climbing
0: I love that Fiona <laughs> um, I've got a sort of a two part question which is if I've written it down as what does failure um, is our friend mean but I want to rephrase it from listening to you to some people think some people say yeah but if we fail it's over we're finished like like i know from speaking to managers they'll say things like yeah but then if we fail then it's the end like and then we can't come back from it um so i'd like you to explain what does failure is our friend mean but also maybe give us a bit of comfort um to to not fear the failure i suppose
1: it's it is an, um a difficult one to deal with and I you know ran around for ages thinking how can I phrase this and I'm not the only person who sort of talks about the power of failure if you read a lot of other leadership stuff. But um you learn more when you're in the deep end and when you obviously you know, fail. But if you succeed at everything, you don't necessarily have the lessons along the way. So I'm not, you know, Basically, what my saying failure is our friend is that there's nothing to fear in the sense that you will get good stuff out of it. But also I offer a couple of examples that for some people, if you go after failure and just get over it rapidly, Mm. you get the learning and you move on rather than putting all your energy into avoiding it. And the best example, which I do think I use in the book that I came up against. So Um, I've worked with major automation sort of um, implementations, working at a rather large retailer like Amazon. Um, And as I first got comfortable with the tech, I was running businesses and tech changes are going to make that difficult or mean certain things are no longer possible because you design for, you know, for the juggernaut that is scale and then make sure you can cope with the edge cases. That's how it's been. But I found my businesses often in the edge cases to start with and i would be putting effort into stopping the automation going into my area to protect that rather than saying all right just roll this automation over quick as possible my business will fall over and let's put the energy into picking it up again so the software engineers when they were talking to me they said look our goal is to break the system so rather than look for a successful implementation they actually wanted it to fail they want to fail to see how they can break the system. And therefore, they've got all the edge scenarios to go ahead and fix rather than picking them up one at a time because people are not, you know, using the stuff. And hence, you get basically um, sort of teething problems continuously rather than a whole load of teething problems to be fixed with a dedicated team. And so I learned to sort of run at stuff. And if I fail, fine. My energy is going to go into picking myself up Faster than putting the energy into avoiding failing, and it's like if you look also, let's say you tell your kids don't do that. Well, you need to tell them not to do it. They're going to do it. So it's this logic of what you try to avoid, you put your energy into, and you're you're halted rather than accepting it, and then learning faster at the other side. And you know, and if if it's your you know everything in business, you know maybe. Informing yourself and taking risks that you can cope with the other side, thinking what the other side of failure looks like, yeah. that you'd be happy you can be over there. I mean, from a business point of view, I've lost customers, I've missed targets, you know, and technically I've failed at my goals in a certain year, but the world didn't end and I learned far more than had
0: I smoothed through. Um, right.
1: And so yeah. it's that sort of perspective, if that answers your question.
0: No, it does, Fiona. I've, I I even learned to add that to pitching as well, um, the sales process, because I remember we were pitching for a big piece of business with Selfridges once. And Simon Forster's first question was, can you let me know? can we just kick off with all the times that you've got this wrong? Because the last thing I want is an agency coming in that's not made the mistakes before. (laughs)
1: Because if you don't make mistakes, you don't know whether you're doing something suboptimally or even you don't know. Everybody talks about pushing the envelope. Well, you need to kind of rip the envelope on the edges to know whether you're being aggressive enough or too yeah. aggressive. And it's about finding what you're possible of. But, yeah. you know, the more we talk about things we've failed at, the more people will feel comfortable with it. And there's still the, to go back to this sort of society dictates on us how to be, you know, there's a shame people have around failing at stuff. I failed to get into INSEAD the first time around, or, you know, I failed at whatever this, that, and the other. I couldn't talk about that 20, 30 years ago. I was mortified that I hadn't succeeded. And I think getting over that, getting over yourself in a certain sense, gives you far more learning Mm. and you'd be surprised how many of our sort of large founders around the world, you only see them in the spotlight because of the success stories. And there would have been hundreds
0: of failures that preceded
1: it and that gave them the ability to be successful.
0: Yeah, which is funny, isn't it? Because when people are uh, interviewing, they ask for experience. But it is a coded way of saying like, what mistake? What what have you got? Like, what have you done? Like, how have you learned from this? And but we just don't add the word. We're scared of the word failure. It seems to be so loaded, doesn't it?
1: But I mean, I mean, I just hope when I think of things like COVID around the world, that people are open about learning where each nation maybe got it wrong or could have done better, rather than actually just sort of being afraid to talk of where they could have done it, you know, in a certain way. Because there's so much learning. Um, that you only find
0: when something breaks. Yeah, yeah, so true. Wow, time is flying, Fiona. I've got, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna have to rush. Gonna have to rush the last, uh, um, last question. So, just, it's a very personal one, but when you think of all this stuff, Fiona, like these lessons that you've got, like where did you, where did you learn? Like, where are the? W- w- when you look back, was the heightened areas of learning, or or, or, or was it more of a, a steady progress of test and learn, test and learn, or if there's significant events that you that come to your head?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, I, I know I ignored most of the advice. My parents, uh, you know, were telling me to <laughs> slow down, do this, that, and the other. And retrospectively now, I think, yeah, maybe they had a thing, but I was this, you know, ambitious and uh, stubborn um, individual. And maybe I could have learned things, less harshly or done things in a different way. I sort of, you know, learned from a lot of that. But I've moved around a lot, I've changed different countries and cultures and seen a lot. So I've experienced what I did like and what I didn't like. Um, and I've had probably 18 managers or more in my career. And so I've I've known what works for me and I know what I really don't like. And so I also know what I'm trying to model myself on the pieces that I liked and the bits that I, that I didn't. So that's an absolute one of experience. Um, but also, um, I've pushed myself to the limits. I've trodden on the toes of somebody you know, as in you know figuratively, in terms of when I was too tired after my you know first two kids. Um, I was firing on next to nothing and maybe my perspective was compromised. And I learned that by seeing, the way it affected other people and then as i you know reflected on that i saw what was going on but when you're in the heat of the moment i was completely ignoring people because i knew what i was doing apparently so taking the time to reflect whether that's reflecting over 20 years or reflecting over 5 days is where I'm able to learn and I continue to learn all the time. Um, but again, yeah, I ran into some walls um, and I, that was big learning. And equally, the other sort of positive side, at the moments where I thought, you know, self-doubted myself, or wondered, could I do that? But I went after it anyway and I did achieve it. I patted myself on the back and learned that I can do it. And it's mm-hmm. a good job I didn't sort of lose any confidence in myself where I wouldn't have done it. Um but I do know that when I take the biggest risks and I push the biggest adventures, I get the biggest learning and the biggest
0: um happiness out of it. So I definitely learn that about myself. I just I I've just got to add another question. I know we're supposed to finish, but you know how at the beginning you said you've got your left brain and your right brain and you're mm-hmm. and you're quite you've experienced and strengthened both, as in the marketing side and the engineering side. How do you balance how do you balance teams up like that? Because Especially in a business like the Happiness Index, where you've got lots of technical people that definitely like um, like to think things through and plan and so on, and then you do definitely got more creative people that just want to do more of the like, let's just get in there and see what happens. Like, how do you how do you balance that up, Fiona? I'm I'm asking you for personal reasons in my own business, but I'm sure this we cut we the Happiness Index can't be the only business where it's trying to balance up these different ways of doing things.
1: But I think when you if you build your teams, and I don't know how many people are best in team building, rather than simply just hiring a diverse, and hopefully you hire a diverse set of people for their, you know, their inherent, their cognitive, and their acquired diversity, so you have multiple perspectives. But you do have to build teams and help others learn to communicate with each other and also to value the different perspectives. And as a manager, you know that is a role you can do, whether it is classic team building events or the way you decide to communicate and actually take feedback from your teams on what works for everybody. And I've had the luxury of you know different stuff to the uh, happiness index, but nonetheless similar in terms of listening to my teams and understanding what works for them en masse, but individually what works, and sort of sharing that back to them so they can learn to appreciate different points of view different ways of working and different styles, be that, you know, the, the, the digital stuff today or the classic um, you know things like the discovery insights or all those sorts of things that help people understand team dynamics. But mm. I would encourage always to have a bit of both. It's about creating the environment that everybody feels that their bit is valid, uh, valid, um, and actually to respect and build rather than see the creatives do it like that, the structures do it like that. How can the creative build on the structure bit and vice versa? When you do anything, um, and that's where you find more powerful stuff comes out. But it's about being comfortable as a manager to do that because it won't always be easy nor uh, straightforward. Um, But, you know, communication with your team is the, the answer to getting any of these things off the ground. That, so, that's so,
0: that's, that is so that's so useful. Uh, we should come back and do a whole session on, on that building teams bit, Fiona.
1: Uh, Happy to help. <laughs> I, to
0: Caroline, I think she'd be up for that. But I'm actually going to do a live demonstration now because I don't like getting freebies. So what I'm doing, um, but I do like giving away freebies. Right now, I've gone onto Amazon and I've loaded your book in. I've loaded five copies. i've clicked buy now and they arrive tomorrow
1: oh wow (laughs) i'm
0: sure you're nice and i'm sure i could have asked you for some but i do i am this weirdo i don't like asking for discounts because i like when people have actually put effort and time into something actually paying what the price is so i've ordered five copies from amazon for our listeners the first five that just messaged me saying oi matt send me one of those free copies i will um but what's the uh, what's the best way of getting hold of the book have i just done that or is there better ways
1: yeah. So with a with the perspective of being um, inclusive, it's available not just on Amazon. Despite having worked there, it's uh, Waterstones, <laughs> Amazon's in the US, Barnes and Nobles. If it's just ebook, it's on Kobo, etc. And the Book Depository. And um, all of those are on the top of my author page on my website, FionaMacDonald.com. Um, but if you know, if you just want to head to Amazon, it's there and easy to get to.
0: Brilliant. I've just had to verify my card in the time that you did that bit. <laughs> So Fiona, I have learned so much. It's been amazing. Um, uh, yeah, I feel so thankful that that I know you and I can actually ask you these questions direct. But please, um, I would highly recommend having a read of this book. And and if someone wants to give you feedback on the book, Fiona, what's what's the best way to get to get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, love to take feedback on the, wherever the retail sites you buy it, or you can actually put it on Goodreads. I actively go on and read there, or via my website again. Uh, I'll give you the the address for your notes. Um, I love hearing what people have to say because some people who've read it so far have seen different angles that it could be for different people than I'm thinking, and I love to share that back. So all views are valid.
0: Thank you for your time, Fiona.
1: Thank you for having me, Matt.